Michonne. And I'm James Certin. Conversation, expertise and advice on the world and well-being of our teenagers. Well, it is a, it's a real honour for us. We are, um, I would say, a, an educational icon for us both. And that is the principal of Berkhamsted Group of Schools, Richard Backhouse. Lovely to see you this afternoon, Mr Backhouse. Very nice to see you, both the Jameses. Now, what we would love to talk about this afternoon, I suppose seeing you as a, a you know, a very free-thinking, independent-thinking and brilliant thinker of, of the world of education and where you see it is today and perhaps where it will be in the future. You know, thinking about our, our sort of parents that might be listening to what we're saying, you know, what, what, what are the, you know, of course, COVID-19, but what are the kind of the main challenges and issues for parents today in your book? Uh, I think that they're preparing their children for a world that looks more and more uncertain. And I think a lot of the language we use about the future is uncertain. It was before COVID-19 came over the horizon. And I think it's got a lot more uncertain than since then. Um, the government did a piece of research a couple of years ago called LISPE2, L-Y-S-P-E-2, um, which followed up on some research they did about 10 years before. And they interviewed 12,000 teenagers, and they found that teenage behaviour had become much less risky. Teenagers are doing far fewer um, daft things. They're being much less experimental, but they're much more worried about their future, what, how they will earn a living, what their careers will look like, how their lives and how the world will pan out over the, the course of their lifetime. And you know, listening to the news, reading the newspaper, you can see why they do that. There are lots of things which are frightening about the next 20, 40, 60 years, um, and, and they can expect to live um, for at least um, 80, 90 years if, if um, life expectancies don't start to fall. I heard a cultural commentator describe this feeling as a sort of ambiance of anxiety. And that was before COVID, you know, that was before the situation that we find ourselves in. And that's really kind of exacerbated this problem. What kind of mechanism, what kind of things can, can we do as educators and as parents to help ease that ambiance, to kind of create a, a sort of a greater sense of security? Or is it possible? I think it's possible. I think the, the watchword of our times is going to be resilience. Uh, young people are going to have to be resilient to events that make them change careers, change jobs, um, respond to changes in their environment and their habitat. And they're going to need to be much more adaptable and flexible than our generation. And the generation before us, our parents' generation, lived largely linear lives. My great-grandfather was born in 1829 and died in 1925. So he, he was born into a world that hadn't really started to develop, where people often didn't leave the county they were born in. And he died at a time in the, in the swinging 20s when nightclubs were being invented and trains were going everywhere, commercial air travel had started. But even he won't, wouldn't have seen the kind of changes that a child would see being born in the last 20 years and living for 96 years as he did. I mean, I'm interested by that linear idea because I remember when I first went to teaching in my early 20s, I taught for a couple of years in a state school in London. And then I said to my dad, no, I'm going to go and do another job now. I'm going to change careers for a bit. And he just, and my uncle actually, both tried to sort of talk me out of it on the basis of, no, you've got your career. This is your career. You're going to be a teacher 
And that's that's your life. That's what you do now. And that was their thinking, that generation, wasn't it? And our generation have changed somewhat, but the, the levels of adaptability for the future generations or the current young people is going to be that times five, it seems to me. I think you're absolutely right, James. I think for a teacher now, if they go off and do another career for 10, 15, 15 years, they might come back to teaching and find that the activities that are being done in the classroom, the tools that are being used to do it, are completely different from the ones that were being used when they were in the classroom at the start of their career. And that's interesting because I, I didn't find that. <laughs> Life was very much the same. But now I think if I'd stepped forward in the last 10 years, I would have seen a change. And particularly, I think COVID has highlighted quite a dramatic change in how we can teach, you know, having to go online and people are beginning to see different ways of teaching, aren't they? They are. And the particular challenge for someone like me is that I can go into a digital classroom now and see a young teacher teaching predominantly through Microsoft Teams, which I've never done, predominantly using Microsoft OneNote, which I've never done, and checking what pupils are doing on their screens with screen monitoring software called Senso, which I've never used. And the activities that teacher is doing in the classroom are not the activities I did as a full-time teacher for 15 years before I became a head. There's going to be a generation of school leaders who don't fully understand what the teachers are doing in the classroom. And actually, to some extent, nor should they, because that's where they should allow their teachers to specialise and to lead what's happening in the classroom, to trust them to do that. But it's going to take a slight change in, in school leaders to have the resilience, I think, not to be the experts in their school at exactly what is happening every minute of every day in every classroom, because the young teachers should be leading it past the experience, the capability, the imagination even, um, of the, to, today's head teacher. And I think leaders need to expect and allow people to experiment. And that means that not everything is going to be a success first time. I try to say often, it'd be a surprise if we, given this is the first time we're doing this, if it goes brilliantly. It always goes brilliantly about the fifth time we do it. It doesn't might need to be perfect the first time. We've probably been not ambitious enough if it's perfect the first time we do it. Teachers have to model that to children because today's children, pupils, students are going to have to live with that kind of iteration to, of activities to reach a level, a good level, because they're going to things will change so quickly. They're going to have to experiment and do things for the first time much more than than we have in our careers. And this this has actually been a perfect example of that. I mean, we've had to model adaptability. We've had to model learning equipment and you know IT that we've never used before. And I think quite an interesting process for pupils later down the line is for us to reflect on that ourselves and to say what we learned through that experience. But as parents too, to sort of explain how they're having to do new things for the first time and discussing that and what they've learned. And actually, as you talked about, getting things wrong and making pupils and our children aware that actually it's very rare to get things right the first few times we try them or adapt to them. One of the most important experiences in my education, I think, was getting stuck halfway around an assault course. Uh, Two-thirds of my team were on one side of a large pond with all the equipment and two people who'd fallen off the log that they were meant to be bouncing on to be pulled across the lake at the last minute on the other side of the lake and having to find uh, a solution to that. While my peers laughed at me and reminded me frequently, loudly and in slightly ribald terms that um, our time was going to be slower than everybody else's time around the assault course. But actually being faced with a situation, this is a crisis. You're 16, you're in the full glare of your peers. 
Are you going to find a way out of the crisis? Are you going to sit down with everybody and say, okay, we've got a real problem here. We're going to come last. What's the best last we can come? And how are we going to solve this problem? I think about that moment um, at least every fortnight. Can I, can I ask you, Richard, if we go back to, you know, your, your first comment about the idea that, you know, we are living in a world where young people don't know what their futures look like, like that sense of uncertainty. What is, what are the priorities for parents bringing up children into this world? You know, parenting now and, and looking after young people who are battling with their sense of self-worth, their, their you know, loss of self-esteem, the, the sort of fears and anxieties of their future. How can parents, what are the priorities for parents at the moment? Well, at the risk of sounding like Dominic Cummings, I don't think anyone wants to sound like Dominic Cummings at the moment, I'm going to say something which some people will um, will disagree with, so lots of reasonable people will disagree with. Um, I, I think that one of the fundamental things that prepares children for the, the rockier roads that they have to travel in their lifetime is to develop in them a confidence which is based on their identity and not in their achievements. Those of us who went to school in the 1980s largely experienced a kind of schooling which based our confidence in our achievements. To take a sort of trite and, and oversimplified version, pianists took grade one, they got a certain mark, they took grade two, they got a certain mark. Their confidence, their status as a pianist was based on the grade exam they'd taken and what their score in it was. Um, what kind of pianist are you? I'm a grade six pianist. I, I'm not speaking personally, I'm not even a grade one pianist. I think since then, we've got an idea that our confidence might be based in our identity, not in our achievements. And I think that's because what happened to us as 1980s school pupils who went off into the world is that the moment when our achievements dried up, that's when we discovered we needed our confidence. What achievements could we rely on at that point for our confidence? None. They dried up. But a confidence in our, which is based in our identity, who we are at our core, and our, our self-knowledge um, in that identity means that in a crisis, we're able to reflect on an unchanged identity that's at our core, that gives us stability. Uh, and we're also able to use that, the knowledge of the previous crisis we've navigated safely to find our way out of the current one. And I think schools need to shift into giving people confidence in their identity. And I think that means, for example, being laughed at in school is really bad for young people because it's exposing their identity to um, ridicule, which can be novel. Actually, I think the world has got better at recognising people's identity and saying it, it really is okay to be you. I think school fundamentally needs to give every young person a sense that it's okay for them to be them and to take the mask off, which teenagers tend to wear, just relax and be themselves. I think that liberates them then to give their energy to maths and chemistry and the flute and playing hockey and Duke of Edinburgh and debating, all the other things they want to do in and around school. Um, but if they're busy trying to pretend to be someone they're not, the, the bandwidth they've got left for achievements, I think, will be less anyway. I was going to just ask on the back of that, I mean, I guess what you've described is the midlife crisis, isn't it? You base your whole life on achievements and then you, you know, but how do, how do you practically teach a child about their identity how do you how do you go about as a parent as an educator helping them to understand who they are so i'm conscious i'm about to talk to an english teacher about using language which is never a good position to put yourself in particularly when your degrees in economics i think the answer to that though is in language you know it's in not describing someone as a bad child but a, a child who did something bad 
a pupil is not clumsy or late or inattentive, but their behaviour in a particular moment may have been. And it's about detaching the negative things that young people are involved with from their identity and talking to them all the time about what their identity is in a way which is affirmative. Um, there's a very good book, uh, Redirect, by Timothy J. Wilson, I think it is, is the name of the author, uh, on that, which, which is excellent about affirming the story that a young person is creating and is telling themselves so, uh, in the way that we deal with some, something. You know, I might say to a child, it's a shame, that I was disappointed that you were um, late then, because I don't, you're not a careless person. You don't, you're not a person who would come late for something just... For, for no reason. So separate the action from the identity, praise the identity, critique the action, I think would be the beginning of it. It's, it's a lot more complex than that. Some people might say, you know, I've heard people say before that sometimes all you do there is just create a, a to use the ambiance word, an ambiance of affirmation, you know, away from anxiety. And partly the anxiety is caused by affirmation. We constantly affirm people about who they are. And then when things don't go their way, they're thinking, oh, why is that not happening? Is, what would you answer to that? I think if we're critiquing activity, not identity, should give us scope to be pretty clear and honest about activity which isn't consistent with the identity. So if I'm talking in an assembly to the pupils, I say, this is the kind of school I think we are and the kind of school I think we want to be. And this particular little thing is something which I don't think is consistent with the identity of the community that we want to be and the identity we want to be to aspire to as individuals. And then I think you have license to be pretty clear, direct and critical of the activity which is compromising the identity people have or would like to have. Can I just take us a route down education in terms of exams and stuff like that? I'd be interested to get your views. We've come, in the last few years, we've just changed to GCSEs one to nine, we've got we've gone from three and a half A levels, as it were, to three A levels, taking out the kind of AS um, line. How successful do you think that has been? And I mean, it feels to me as if we've almost gone back sort of twenty years, weirdly. And you know, do you, do you see that as holding, or do you think that as changing? I mean, it strikes me as just off the top of my head, we're talking about adaptability. And yet at A-level, we're teaching specialism, not range. And that's something that's been not really mimicked by anywhere else in the world. And there's a lot of in, in the news and books written recently about the importance of range. And how does that idea of being specialists feed into what we're also saying at the beginning of this podcast, which is we need them to be adaptable and, uh, you know, change, as it were? Yeah, they're very important questions. I would observe that most secretaries of state for education in my lifetime seem to have tried to recreate their own school days in schools for which they're responsible, which indicates largely that they were happy at school and, and not very much else. So I think Michael Gove took us back to his school days. Theresa May, when she was Prime Minister, as a former grammar school girl, wanted everyone to be in a school that was like a grammar school. Um, so I think there's a danger that our politicians have tried to recreate the rosiest days of the past, as, as you um, indicate. Um, I think we need to be careful to distinguish between adaptability and I'm not sure if range, the word used is the, is the one that I would choose, but with modular A-levels, when people did more A-levels and arguably a wider range of subjects, to take one example, in, in maths, 
the questions in a particular maths module were largely the same, but with numbers, um, individual numbers changed to exactly the same. Some couldn't be reproduced, but there was always going to be a question on this technique and a question on that technique and a question on a third technique and so on. I think what we have recovered in the new A-levels is a lack of predictability in the questions and uh, an extended, deeper questioning, which asks people to write at greater length, uh, with greater perception and greater individuality. And I think that is demanding flexibility. I think you can demand flexibility and agility in narrower range of subjects. In fact, because it demands a greater depth of knowledge, I think arguably you can demand greater understanding of nuance in a smaller range of subjects. And clearly we, we should want young people to be growing up with enough knowledge to live functional lives in a world in which spotting uh, real news or fake news is going to be increasingly important. And the people who five years ago were saying we didn't need to teach young people any knowledge because they get it all on the internet um, clearly hadn't heard of fake news, but now we have. I think we understand that a, a degree of um, understanding is necessary so that you can check incoming facts and say, does this fit into my framework? Does this seem credible? Topical at the moment with Twitter having uh, criticised the President of the United States today and suggested that readers of his tweets fact check what he says for the first time. I think that's an important development, not because that particular tweet uh, or tweeter has been checked, but because we're encouraging young people, all people, to check their facts, to have enough knowledge to just be a little bit careful about what they accept as being true in the online echo chambers in which, to some extent, we all live now. Yeah, I, I love that idea about agility and flexibility. I certainly, as a teacher, have found the new A-level syllabus a lot more interesting because you're not having to teach to a, an exam at the end of year 12. So the flexibility with how you approach the course, if you've got imagination for it, you can, you can take your pupils on much more of a journey in terms of what they're able to do. But I like the idea and I'm interested in this notion because, of course, we, we've all, you know, all the pupils carry a mobile phone. You know, you say, what's the Battle of Bosworth? They can look it up, the date on their phone. What's the answer to this? What's the answer to that? We're getting away from that kind of teaching, aren't we? Like you say, and actually it is more nuanced. We're getting them to critique the world, to analyse, to, to try and think, you know, about, you know, whether something they've been told is true or not. And that's a very different skill, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm reading Hans Rosling's Factfulness at the moment, which is a very interesting read because it, it, he writes about the biases that mean that our understanding of the world is, in some respects, quite rudimentary. If you ask uh, even a set of teachers in a large number of the world's industrialised countries, for example, what proportion uh, of the world's children have um, vaccinations? Uh, what proportion of the world live in extreme poverty and what, what's happening to that proportion. Most adults in most of the world get the answers really terribly wrong because they don't understand how much better a place the world is becoming year on year. And uh, Rosling goes through the ways in which we're biased to spot the things which alarm us. Therefore, we're biased to spot things which are getting worse, whereas things that are gradually getting better just, just go by us without our noticing. I think that also a bias to positivism and alertness to good news are also important things for young people. 
In terms of that, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, the, the, you know, we've we've learned quite a lot in the last sort of five years that actually a lot of what we read on the internet is deliberately channeled to what we already believe. How How is that? I mean, we talked about kind of left and right wing in politics, but actually our learning can be quite similar if we, we can be quite extreme down one way of thinking. How do we try and bring our peoples to the sort of the middle ground, to the mediating, to the diplomacy, to the conflict resolution? How do we create scenarios for them to do that? I think it's really important that the word challenging loses any negative context for a number of reasons. I I think I'm going to try to be diplomatic here. If you were to sign as a player for Watford Football Club, when you went to training, you'd expect to find the training challenging at an elite football club like Watford. But the but the challenging that you would find in the training at Watford Football Club would be a positive rendition of the word. But often we use the idea of a challenging difficulty level as being negative. Actually, it should be positive. If you go to teach in a really good school, the experience of teaching that school should be challenging. I hope the pupils would be challenging the teacher. I hope there would be a constant challenge to do things better. But on another level, the, the ability of us all to challenge each other with courtesy and without being, things being personal, I think is a fundamental part of good human relationships. I've encouraged lots of the people I've worked with to read books by Patrick, Patrick Lencioni, and he constantly reiterates this idea that the quality of our relationships is actually only as high as our ability to tolerate some discomfort in being candid and challenging with people. Because if we never tell anyone how we really feel, then the quality of our relationships will be depleted by that. And I think teaching young people to, to be up for challenge, to be challenged, to challenge others, to be in an environment which is not monochrome but diverse is really important from that point of view. I guess that comes back a little bit to this affirmation critique bit again, doesn't it? We want them to feel secure in their identity, but we also need to challenge them in that. And that, that's quite a, a subtle, a very important skill, as you've outlined already. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't life be done if, if everybody always agreed with everybody else? Well, Richard, moving moving forward on the educational journey, if you were to pitch to the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, to hazard a go, I'm sure you've done lots of thinking on it. What, what are going to be the principal changes, do you see? Well, this is a, a pretty hard time to be looking into the future, whatever kind of environment you're looking into the future in. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult to predict accurately anything apart from the need for agility and flexibility. I think that one of the things that's happened in the last three months is that schools, teachers, head teachers have had to innovate and there will be hugely variant innovations in lots of different places. There'll be an exciting um, array of innovations that have taken place. And the strongest of those innovations will survive, and the weaker of them will be um, will disappear as there's a sort of return to normal that displaces them. But I think there will be a lot of innovation in education in the next five to ten years. I think there'll be a greater use of technology because the need to provide on learn online learning has meant that we've had to learn to do that well and I think people will now see that as a robust platform that protects us against another um, episode like the one we're living through. 
Um, I think we'll think very care carefully about what happens in school now that we've missed um, about seven weeks of school term time. What is it that we've really missed and what is it that we've been able to recreate online and with the things we've been able to do online, should we already have been doing them online? So I think it's going to be a redefinition of what those hours in school are actually for. And that's going to be very exciting because I don't think, it, I don't think that particular uh, exercise is predictable. We will prove by degree of experimentation what is the best thing to do in school when children are in school and what are the best things to get them to do out of school. Do you think it's going to be even more extreme in universities? the kind of change that this sort of experience might bring, you know, online teaching, the whole kind of traditional, oh, I woke up at 11 o'clock and missed my lecture, or that can't really hold anymore. <laughs> or do you think actually that, that universities and schools will be kind of co-linked and working in the same direction? I think university education is going to have a real shake-up. Uh, if all your lectures are online, why do you need to go and live in a building 250 miles from home to follow the course you really want to follow in the department you really want to study in? Will people move away from their parents to study in a university town with all the expense that brings? I'm not sure they will. Will that make university a lower sunk cost for a student because they don't have to show that for three years' accommodation? Maybe online courses will allow students to go more at their own speed Maybe people will be able to attend universities all across the world. Maybe we'll get better at networking, doing seminars, tutorials, rather than just online lectures. I think that's hard to see. I think what will be a real shame is if we lose that kind of coffee shop experience of university. Certainly my experience of university was that the richest parts of it were sitting down with people in four or five different subject disciplines and hearing them talk about the same issue in very different ways. And you could hear in the way they spoke about them, the different training that they were having in how to think based in their subjects. And, and that I thought was fascinating. And I, I hope we don't get away from that and end up with a more siloed experience, however university reforms, because I, I think that would weaken our universities significantly. Could we just perhaps um, bring it to just the current situation? Obviously, there's a lot of talk about schools reopening and how that's going to happen. Just what are your opinions on reopening schools uh, and the like? It's a very important question. It's a great question. I think it's a difficult question for me to answer because I'm in one particular environment and there'll be lots of people in different situations across the UK who will necessarily have different reflections. I think the key thing about going back to school is the way each school will work out who has been able to prosper during a period of online learning and who hasn't. Um, and to do two things. One is to support those for whom this has been a more difficult experience than their peers, maybe, for example, for very highly extroverted young people. Maybe for those whose uh, family lives involve more siblings of different ages and, a, and a, um, a household which is more compressed and gives less scope for concentration. Um, maybe some who can't be as well supported at home uh, in their learning as, as other households. And for each of those households that to have an opportunity to catch up as much as they can. 
And then I guess to work out how to give those people the skills not to fall behind again. Because partly we need to try to um, help everyone to become more independent. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion of independent learning during this period. The key will be saying those who haven't been able to become as effective independently and give them the tools um, to become more effective independent learners. And from that point of view, I do think there's a real prospect of seeing a generation of young people come through who've developed skills that you and I didn't develop at school because we didn't face the kind of hardship and the kind of crucible in which these skills are forged. I think we need to look out for those and be ready to praise them and draw young people's attention to them because for them they'll be normal. But for our world, they won't be. And when they leave school, when they go into the workplace, they need to be in a position to understand that their generation may have more of this skill than the generation older than them. They may need to be a bit more vocal about saying, actually, I do know how to do that. I've got experience in doing that because... That's a very good message for parents as well, isn't it? That actually they're all worried about, well, they, they'll have lost this or they've lost that. But there's actually, like you say, an awful lot that they will have gained through this experience that they can take into life, which actually in a way is fundamentally far more important. So, you know, I'm just writing down that last idea, which I think is really interesting, that idea of you know, gains for the long term. And what do you think some of those gains might be? Uh, independence. Uh, an ability to puzzle away at a problem for a bit longer. So that will possibly uh, a, a greater interval between if I'm perceiving there to be a roadblock and asking for help in dealing with it. So a greater interval which which person tries to deal with that themselves. I think a greater facility for learning online. I suspect the concentration and attention span of people in dealing with digital meetings uh, has been increased enormously over the last um, 10 weeks, not just the teenagers either. Um, their facility with IT, they've discovered shortcuts to do things at five times the speed um, and five times as effectively as your I can. I, I don't think I'm um, being rude about your IT skills or mine in saying that. So I, I will be an array of things. Um, and some of them will be things that we can't spot at the moment. We'll only be aware of them either. So if you were a parent, that's, you know, obviously homeschooling is going to carry on for a while. What tips might you give them in terms of helping their children become those independent learners if they're struggling to be them? Well, I think one of the things as a parent is to be open and honest about things that the, their children are more expert in than the parent. Um, I, I had an interaction with um, an adult um, where they were suggested they record a video message. And they said, oh, I'm not sure I would know how to do that. And I said, well, I think you've probably got two experts in your household, age 14 and 17. And I'm sure that was true. That those two, in this case, young men would have, would have been able to do it extremely well, the recording and the editing and preparation for distribution. Um, and I think parents need to be on the lookout for opportunities to praise and develop and recognise and sometimes exploit the expertise of their children so that the children start to understand that there are some things in which they have greater expertise than the generation older than them. And I think it's always a temptation as a parent to try to be the expert in all things. And actually, as 
children grow into the teenage years and as they grow through the teenage years, it can be tremendously important for them to start to realise there are areas in which they're given so much agency by their parents, their parents recognise that they, the children, know more about and are more capable in various things than the parents. I think my 12-year-old already realises he's far more <laughs> intelligent than me in very various areas, but there we go. <laughs> well, I think um, we should probably draw it to a close because we've taken up a lot of your time already, but um, I'm very grateful for you to, to come on this, Richard, and I'm super grateful for everything you've contributed. And I'm also super grateful for you saying elite Watford team uh, in the same <laughs> sentence, because that that's, that filled me with joy today. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to seeing whether the reference to Watford as an elite football team makes it through the end. <laughs> <laughs> of course it will. Of course it will. I, um, I would like to offer my thanks, and I've written a page of notes. I find that there is so much that we can learn from you, and I hope that the parents and the people that are listening to this will, uh, will, will, will receive exactly the same, because it's wisdom. And it's truth and it's good. So thank you very much indeed, Richard. Real pleasure. Nice to see you both. You've been listening to Talking Teenagers. Music has been by Rue Paynes. Editing by George Purvis and James Certin. For more information about I Can and I Am Charity, who provide presentations and resources and help build self-confidence in young people, visit their website at icanandiam.com. Be a soldier of hope.